Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we get started, I wanted to remind everyone that we do have two event series. The first one focuses on big data and data science. It's called Strata Data Conference, and you can find that at strataconf.com. The second conference focuses on AI. It's called the O'Reilly Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at o'reillyaicon.com. In this episode, I sat down with Alex Ratner, a graduate student at Stanford and a member of my friend Chris Ray's HACI Research Group. Training data has always been important in building machine learning algorithms, and the rise of data-hungry deep learning models has heightened this need. In fact, in many companies, the challenge of creating training data is ongoing because specific applications change over time. And what were gold standard data sets may no longer apply to changing situations. Chris Ray and his collaborators have proposed a framework for quickly building large training data sets. In essence, they've observed that one can use noisy training data and still end up with very high quality models. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Alex Ratner, a member of the Hasey Research Group at Stanford, welcome to the data show. Thanks for having me on. Excited to be here. And so, so today's uh, topic is uh, of interest to many data scientists who are doing machine learning. Because as uh, your advisor and my friend Chris Ray likes to put it, if big data is the new oil, then I guess training data is the new new oil. And so everyone appreciates the importance of training data. In fact, if anything, uh, it's become even more important in light of deep learning. And so you, Chris, and the rest of the group have a, have an interesting take on how people can build large-scale uh, training data sets, generally under the umbrella of, is it uh, weak supervision? Yeah, I think this is a, a, a term that um, people have used before, but that especially around Stanford, we're using to talk about these methods where we have lower quality training data or noisier training data. And the significance here from our perspective is that uh, this noisier training data, if we can get our machine learning models to handle it, is much faster for uh, users to create. When you say, so when you say noisier data, this people might say, well, doesn't that mean that then... Uh, if I use that for training, I, my, uh, my trained model isn't as good. Well, so at a high level, um, to start, machine learning models are, are you know, meant to be robust to some noise um, in, in the distribution they're trained on. But just taking a step back, I mean, most of machine learning is predicated, or most of supervised machine learning is predicated on this notion of a gold standard training set that the model actually learns from. And maybe five, you know, five or more years ago, these training sets were often smaller because we had simpler models. And so people would spend their time sort of doing two things, labeling training data or getting experts to do that, and also then sort of defining features that their model should look at. And one of the really important trends that we've seen, and that is you know, quite obvious to any data science observer, is that more people than ever are using models like deep learning models, which are, um, may have something like 10 million free parameters. And the benefit of these, the practical benefit is that uh, they take away a lot of, they, they automate a lot of the feature engineering process. But what this sort of shifts the pain point to, because there's, you know, this is sort of the no free lunch theorem, is that being more complex, they need more training data to fit their parameters to. And so this is sort of where our, our motivation really comes from. And if you look at the, uh, you know, very remarkable empirical successes that 
uh, deep learning, say, has had over the last couple of years, mostly these are predicated or almost entirely they're predicated on uh, these large labeled training sets that have been, uh, you know, like ImageNet or or other ones that you know took years to create, and and this might you know even you know ImageNet for example didn't require you know hiring domain expert scientists. It just required getting people to label cats versus dogs. But even just you know getting this set up was a massive undertaking. So our our motivation is really how do we how do we you know weaken this bottleneck? And that's where the the training data is the new new oil slide comes from because this is in our work and in others what we see as the main bottleneck right now. When you folks talk about weeks of supervision, you you basically have a few general buckets or examples, right? So let's go through some of those examples. Sure. For example, I uh, you have the notion of, uh, I guess, uh, domain heuristics, right? So rules of thumb and common patterns. What else? Yeah. So so there's a lot of stuff that uh, we can directly solicit from domain experts. So for example, if we're trying to train a uh, machine reading model to pull out facts from, say, clinical records or scientific publications, a uh, domain expert might be able to provide us with some, some regexes or some patterns pretty, pretty simply. Uh, some other examples are obviously uh, um, uh, crowdsourced data is one example where you, uh, it, it's much cheaper to get this kind of data, but especially for tasks that require some domain expertise. Like Crowdflower or Amazon Mechanical Turk. Exactly. And it is worth noting, actually, that um, I think I heard a, that e- even for professional annotators, I heard a, um, a, a quote at the uh, recent Stanford BioCuration Conference that I think the interannotator agreement for one chemical disease relation extraction task uh, from the literature was uh, 69%, meaning that even that you know, professional non-crowdsourced data is not quite the ground truth that we treat it as. But yeah, so we would think of uh, that or especially data from lay annotators on Mechanical Turk, which uh, you know, as, as weak supervision, because we don't know what the quality is. We don't know what the qualities of the annotators are. And this is one area that's gotten a lot of study on its own. And um, you, have, you have a couple of slightly more technical buckets, like uh, uh, something almost like boosting, right? So. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, it's been, you know, there's been a, a lot of interest in the field of computer science and in other fields for, you know, decades in this idea of taking a bunch of weak learners and creating a, a strong learner by ensembling them. So uh, we view this as another type of weak supervision. If you have uh, simple models, maybe for text, you have a bag of words model or uh, for, you know, training a vision system for a driverless car, you have some simpler models that have biases or that have uh, low coverage. Uh, You should be able to use these to train a more complex and uh, higher coverage model. And so we view this as another source of weak supervision. And then you may have existing ground truth data but in a slightly related field, not, not directly the field that you're in. Exactly. You gave me the, the, the perfect segue to my favorite one and, uh, and favorite one for many of us in the field. So there's a, a technique that's um, uh, gotten a lot of uh, usage, especially in the natural language processing field called distance supervision. And although it's applicable to other domains as well and other modalities. So this is basically the idea that um, you take, a da- yeah, you, exactly, you take a data set that is not exactly what you need for supervision, but you heuristically map it to your data. So let me give an example in text. So how, where it's, how, how is this different from transfer learning? So uh, in transfer learning, you would take one nicely, or in, in the standard transfer learning paradigm, you'd take uh, one nicely, you know, nicely collected training set, and you train your model on that in a standard way, and then you just try to apply your, your model to a new data distribution. So it is very related, but here... Uh, you're using a data set to heuristically label training data to train your model in the first place. So it's, it's at a high level, it, it's somewhat related. But 
let me give a concrete example. So one of the most sort of common examples in, in the natural language processing domain is uh, approaches using Freebase, which is this big knowledge base uh, now I think uh, or was curated by Google for a while. At a high level, uh, suppose that you wanted to go and label, uh, you wanted to train a machine learning model to pull out any mention of someone who is employed by a company and, and form a graph of those relations from, say, news articles. What you could do is you could go to Freebase, which may have some of these, uh, you know, some pairs of, you know, employer-employee tuples in, a, in, in the Freebase database. And you can say something like, well, any sentence where person A is employed by company B and this pair is in Freebase, I'm going to label this as a true example. Now, this is obviously a, um, an imperfect heuristic because it could be a sentence that doesn't say anything about person A of being employed by company B. They just happen to be in the same sentence. But you can see how this would actually have some signal and that, you know, more than 50% of the time, if you craft the heuristic correctly, uh, this actually will create um, correct uh, training data labels. So this is why we view it as another form of, of uh, weak supervision. And it's an important one that's that's been very empirically successful. There's a... So there's a term that people in the crowdsourcing world use, which is called active learning, which is basically, uh, let's say you're in the image labeling example, right? So, so somehow uh, you have a machine learning model that spits out probabilities. If it's highly uncertain, then you send it to a mechanical Turk worker. If it seems like it, the probability is high, then you just accept what the machine learning label is. So where does that fit into your paradigm? Yeah, so there's there's all sorts of cool stuff there, um, and, and and I would say that it's it's uh, uh, complementary or orthogonal to the kind of stuff that that we do with weak supervision. So um, at, a, at a super high level, the active learning paradigm is that you can uh, try to actually determine there's human in the loop. So in weak supervision, is there human in the loop? Uh, yeah. So so um, let me break it. So in for weak supervision. Our, you know, our ultimate goal is to have the uh, make it easier for the the, the human uh, to provide supervision to the model. So that's where the human comes into the loop. And this might be an iterative process in defining these heuristics or getting the distance supervision mapped onto your data set correctly. Or but eventually, uh, when you deploy it to production, the human is no longer in the loop. Yes. Then the so then the the uh, model, the trained model, is what's actually deployed at the end of this. And then active learning is the, you know, at high level, it's the idea that you can, rather than just giving random examples uh, from your data, your data set to get labeled by humans, you can actually choose which ones will uh, be, what will, you know, which ones you estimate will be most helpful to get labels for. So the reason I say this is sort of orthogonal or complementary potentially is that our work is really on changing what type of labels the, the human provides. So not, not necessarily how we choose the data points that are labeled. So again, in traditional supervised learning, uh, which you know, is, is kind of the de facto standard for, for many, many years, people provide yes, no labels, say, or they just provide the classes. Uh, whereas uh, in this spectrum of weak supervision, which includes our work and, and many others, the human might provide heuristic functions, or they might provide uh, probabilistic noisy labels, or they might even provide something like constraints on the output or even transformations that the data should be invariant to, all these sort of um, different uh, ways to provide signals the model to train from. So your uh, paper from MIPS 2016 uh, formula, or I guess uh, provides kind of a model for how to implement weak supervision. I think you guys call it uh, data programming. So 
what is data programming? Yeah, so so data programming and it, and it builds on a lot of uh, cool you know prior work over the years is a uh, a very general uh, flexible framework um, for uh, in court, you know using uh, weak supervision to train some end model that you want to train without any hand labeled uh, training data necessarily. So the the basic way that it works is we actually have uh, two modeling stages in this pipeline. So first the first thing is that we we get input from the you know domain expert user in the form of what we call labeling functions. So uh, this these might just be say think of them as Python functions that take in and and suppose that your problem is that you're trying to classify some objects whether they're images or they're facts in in a scientific journal that you're trying to extract. You're just you know say trying to classify them. So the user writes a bunch of labeling functions which are just black box functions that take in a data point, take in one of these objects and output a label or they could abstain. And these labeling functions, uh, you know, can encode all the types of weak supervision that we just talked about, like distance supervision or crowd labels or various heuristics. Uh, there's a lot of flexibility because we don't make um, any assumptions about sort of what is inside them. And then um, basically, as long as they're, and I can unpack this more uh, later, but as long as they're somewhat independent and uh, better and, and non-adversarial, meaning they're sort of better than random chance on, on average, then what we do is we, in our first modeling stage, we actually use a generative model to learn which of them are more or less accurate by observing where they overlap and where they agree and disagree. So intuitively, if we have 20 labeling functions from a user and we see that one labeling function is always agreeing with its co-labelers on various data points, we think that we should trust this one more. And when a labeling function is always sort of dis disagreeing in the minority, then we downweight this. And um, so basically, we learn this model, which tells us uh, how to weight the different labeling functions the user has provided. And then the output of this model is a set of probabilistic training labels. And then we just feed these into the end model that we're trying to train. And some intuition on the probabilistic labels is all we're basically saying is that, you know, we want the end model to learn more from data points that got lots of high confidence votes, rather than from the ones that were sort of uh, you know, in contention from the the labeling functions that the user provided. So, in many ways, I guess if I were to describe this to someone, you're almost crowdsourcing the model building. Yeah. So, so we're allowing the the user to provide multiple different sources of of, of labeling, and the sources could be, you know, you could think of them like crowdsourcers. They could be, they could sort of represent crowdsourcers, or they could just represent various different heuristics. And basically. What our original motivation was is that uh, um, you know people were doing this in distance supervision, but they were having to sort of um, uh, determine how to resolve conflicts between their different heuristics they were using to label their training data, and they were having to manually figure out which ones are uh, more or less accurate. And then in in standard distance supervision, you're just treating their output as if it's ground, you know, gold standard uh, training data when really it's noisy and some of the labels are, you know, should be higher confidence than others. So basically our, our you know, our motivation was just, can we model this, you know, the, the reality of most training data labeling uh, in many, you know, projects today is that it's a, it's a messy process. And we just, uh, you know, if we know something about that messiness, can we model it and can we uh, make the output training labels better? And, and so this is what we did uh, with this paper. So you mentioned two words there. The, the, uh kind of uh, very, very uh, fashionable to use these days, generative and adversarial. <laughs> <laughs> and adversarial, right? So, so obviously, uh, uh, <laughs> obviously, if, uh, 
if if I were to describe NIPS 2016 based on Twitter, uh, <laughs> NIPS 2016 was about generative adversarial networks, right? So, yeah, I walked right into that trap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, so first of all, so before we go into GANs, uh, generative adversarial networks, I think one of the things that uh, have people excited about it is the whole notion of unsupervised learning, right? So basically, as you describe, if you can get to training uh, or similar data uh, quite handily, then uh, there's a lot of benefits, right? So first, you save a lot of money on uh, hiring people to label data. And secondly, uh, if you can actually generate uh, uh, data that's similar to what you want or similar to your label data, that means maybe you've actually understood something about uh, your problem. Um, But uh, so let's compare what you're doing to what the the neural network people are doing, which is uh, general adversarial networks and variational autoencoders. So first of all, for those who aren't familiar, just kind of high level, what's a generative model? Sure. So, uh, I mean, it's going to sound like a, um, a tautological answer, but the, the uh, you know, a generative model is a model that we, um, that actually, you know, represents the process of generating data points. Um, and so some of the advantages as you enumerated is that you can actually directly sample new data points from a generative model that you've learned. And in many ways, uh, you know, sometimes generative models are able to uh, learn with uh, less data because you've sort of implicitly encoded something about the data generation process into the structure of the generative model versus a discriminative model, which is just trying to estimate the conditional probability of, you know, say, say a, like a certain label like cat versus dog given a data point that is input to it. So it's, it's uh, much harder to, you know, there's no direct way to, you know, sample new images from a discriminative, you know, from an image classifier that's a discriminative model. So then, uh, so then, uh, walk us through what's the difference between uh, what you're doing, which is around data programming and weak supervision, and what the deep learning folks are doing. Sure, I'll paint a very high level picture of the difference, uh, which is that with something like GANs, you're training a generative model to learn to mimic some uh, data distribution. So if you're training a GAN over a you know, over, uh, you know, to generate images of people's faces, uh, you're having this minimax game between a discriminator that's trying to tell fake faces from uh, real faces, and, and you're therefore trying to train the generative model to generate faces that look like that they uh, come from the, the data distribution. The main contrast is that when we're using generative models, we're using them to encode basically input from the users. So we're using it to encode and to model this weak supervision. Uh, whereas GANs are um, an unsupervised approach uh, and train on unlabeled data. Uh, well, we, sorry, we both train on unlabeled data. But while, while GANs are an unsupervised approach, uh, we're actually using this to describe a process of labeling data um, and, and sort of encode these inputs from the users. So, you know, one goal is to generate data, but uh, often our ultimate goal is to train some some end discriminative model, say, to do image classification of, you know, is this tumor benign or malignant or uh, is this something that I want to read out from text? And while people are doing a lot of cool work in this area, it's not, you know, there, are, there aren't, you know, obvious ways to use uh, GANs to provide more training data for these end models. And in general, you know, supervision has to come from somewhere. At some, at some point, you need to have something the model learns from to well, actually distinguish and, and these also labels. Also, at least, at least for now, I think it's most GANs. And some of these other approaches are mostly used for images. I think there's some technical reason around the differentiability of the functions and so on. But um, 
and you guys obviously do a lot with text. But um, I think one of the one of the things that's common to both uh, one one question that cuts across both of these approaches, at least for me, is uh, evaluation. I think it's for you guys. You have an answer, right? So for the GAN people, I think they're still working it out, right? So for, uh, in many ways, so how do you evaluate whether or not an image that you generated is close to a real image? Right, so it's not clear because uh, the what's the notion of distance in pixel space? Yeah, I mean it's that is that is one sort of uh, you know outstanding challenge when you're working with uh, something like GANs. Um, in in our type of setup, you know, we have the same well-defined objectives that that uh, you know any standard you know cl- you know supervised machine learning setting has. So you know, with the models that we work on, we're still uh, evaluating on some some smaller hand labeled data sets uh, to actually see what our accuracy is. And again, our goal is not just to to generate uh, images or to generate labels. It's it's to ultimately to train this end model. Uh, so we're just using the generative model to sort of uh, denoise the input that we get from the user. And the cool thing about this is that you know we are using this for deep learning. Our 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 end discriminative models are usually some some very uh, you know training data hungry deep neural network. And we're using the generative model just to um, uh, to take in these these labeling functions, but the labeling functions are their functions. So you can keep feeding in more unlabeled data and actually get better and better performance uh, with our types of approaches. And you know our generative model here is again just learning how to sort of model the the different inputs from the user as these labeling functions. And uh, you and Chris and the rest of the group have recently extended some of your ideas into two more papers. One is on structure learning. The other one is Socratic learning. So. Uh, walk us through both of those concepts. Yeah, yeah. So I'll talk about Socratic learning first. So, so uh, one high-level idea when you uh, you know when you start working with our our you know way of way of seeing this process is that you know you have these you have your users now instead of saying yes no to data points to individual data points they're giving you functions that that apply heuristics to label data. What our initial you know what our basic generative model does in the data programming paper is it learns. You know the the relative accurate the, the respective accuracies of these labeling functions. So it learns that labeling function number one is you know much more accurate than labeling function ten. But the thing is that uh, we could we could hope to learn more granular information. It might be that you know labeling function one is actually you know is not is actually really good at uh, you know images involved you know daytime images and labeling function ten is actually you know is globally not that good, but it's actually really good at nighttime images. So there might be certain uh, certain divisions of the feature space where the labeling functions are sort of uh, better or worse at. So it's kind of like learning expertise. And so Socratic learning is one framework where we use uh, feedback between the two models to actually learn how to uh, condition these labeling functions and their, or, you know, learn conditional accuracies. So uh, when you say feedback, uh, there's no human involved? Um, no, not in, the, not in the basic formulation, although we're also exploring how this kind of approach can be used to help uh, humans iterate on the weak supervision they're providing. So, so then basically you have these compete. You, you have kind of competing uh, labeling functions, and so walk me through again. So, how do you know which one is strong in in certain parts of the distribution, and the other labeling function is stronger in another region of the distribution? So, there, we we applied. Um, so again, the basic pipeline is your the users are writing these labeling functions that have, you know, to the system have unknown accuracies and, and maybe sort of better or worse at different parts of the data distribution. And our, you know, initially the generative model just tries to learn one accuracy 
for each of the labeling functions, uh, which is sort of like a global accuracy. And then based on that, we, you know, this produces a set of these uh, denoise training labels that then go to the discriminative model. We then, um, in Socratic learning, look at, uh, we use a, a sort of a difference model to look at the, the features that best explain the disagreement between the discriminative and the generative model. And then we feed these back. So suppose one of these features that, you know, best sort of explains the discrepancy between the two is like daytime versus nighttime. And say, you know, say this is an image classification task. Then we would redo our generative modeling phase, except this time we would be trying to learn an accuracy, two accuracies for each labeling function, one for its daytime accuracy and one for its nighttime accuracy. So in, in other words, in your pipeline, at the end of the day, uh, when you do the evaluation, you're still relying on labeled data. Uh, no, no, no. This is uh, this is all using unlabeled data. So again, the the way that we're learning the generative model is we're looking at where the labeling functions agree and disagree, and based on this, we're we're estimating their accuracies. And and again, the, well, what about what about the cases where they agree and they're all wrong? So so that's where some of our you know theoretical assumptions come in, and and um, you know we we have to assume, and actually that's where. Uh, that's where some of the structure learning stuff comes in, which I can uh, I can tell you about in a second. But yeah, the high level takeaway for Socratic learning is that it's an approach that we can learn finer grained accuracies or sort of learn the expertise of our labeling functions. So, you know, we our, our vision is that we want uh, users to just sort of... And Alex, I guess, place it in some context when you say you have a bunch of these weak learners, like what what number of weak learners are we normally talking about here? It very much depends on their form and stuff, but in our text extraction um, applications, uh, which are most widely deployed, uh, you know, this is somewhere, you know, 20, 30 labeling functions usually. Yeah, so we want, we want you know, say our dom domain expert is a, a genomicist that's trying to extract, you know, GWAS or, you know, some, some facts about genes from the scientific literature using a machine learning model. You know, again, in a traditional method, they would spend a month or, you know, a, a couple of weeks or so just hand labeling tons of training data. Um, essentially highlighting facts in the literature. In, in our data programming approach, they would sit down uh, and, and what we want them to be able to do is just quickly rattle off these little, you know, simple scripts or Python functions that express these various heuristics or that leverage, uh, you know, um, data sets that are floating around in the, in the bio domain. And we don't want them to have to worry about, you know, knowing how, ac you know, how accurate each one of their heuristics are or what the heuristics are sort of, what types of data they're better at looking at. We want to learn that all automatically. So that's what data programming and Socratic learning are sort of getting at. And it's all about making it easier and faster for the user to sort of provide this weak supervision to the model. So I guess one of the cool things about Socratic learning is that at some point in the process, you actually learn some of the me underlying mechanism too, right? So some of these learners, as you point out, the, uh, some of the learners are good at certain things, some are, aren't. Yeah, exactly. And so this, and then in many ways, then, does that tell you something about features of the big problem in the big big problem itself, the 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 discriminative model that you're that you're the final problem you're trying to tackle? Yeah, I think I think there's there's some interesting stuff, and and we're doing follow up work in that direction as well. So okay, so structure learning. Yeah, so structure learning is another uh, uh, very cool extension uh, that we've uh, recently done some work on, and and um, I'll first pitch it in the context of this data programming stuff we're talking about, although, you know, there's there's some cool ideas for more general applicability. Uh, I should say for Socratic learning, we're also, you know, not just for applying to data program, we're also interested in how this type of a method could be used to correct misspecification in generative models uh, more generally. So that's just a, a, a little note. But either way, um, structure learning, uh, we're, we're attacking another problem, which is that 
in, in the paradigm that, that, um, that we define with data programming, users write these labeling functions, but we, we initially make some mild assumptions, some assumptions that these, the labeling functions are sort of independent, uh, or conditionally independent. So imagine, um, if, uh, if you had, you know, you were, you had 10 labeling functions, but they were all copies of each other. This, this would, this would break the model because, uh, you would think that they were all agreeing with each other. And you'd think that this means you should, you know, sort of have more confidence in their individual accuracies, but really they're just copies. This doesn't actually give us any additional information. It's kind of like my, um, uh, my co-author, uh, Stephen Bach likes the example of, um, if you've ever seen the yes men skit in Monty Python, but it's, uh, you know, if you imagine sitting in a boardroom and you're asking, you know, your, your associates for their opinion on something, you want their independent opinions because this gives you more information. If they're all just saying yes and they're copying each other, this doesn't, this is all redundant information. There are dependencies there. So what structure learning is all about is it's showing that actually in this setting, we can automatically learn which labeling functions are, are correlated. And from a practical standpoint, this is super useful because sometimes we have users who are writing labeling functions for the same application in parallel. So without knowing it, they may actually write some redundant labeling functions that sort of uh, do the same thing. Or we had an application where we wrote two labeling functions and one was over uh, and they were just over sort of slightly different pre-processed versions of the text. So really they were kind of like copies of each other, but uh, this didn't come out and it caused the system to overweight the uh, accuracy of, this, of these two labeling functions. So uh, using structure learning, we can automatically correct for this and we see it as yet another way of, of sort of relieving the burden on the user of, of how much they have to know about how their labeling functions interact or are correlated to use the system. It's not just that you identify that they're correlated, you actually fix it. Yes, yeah, because we can, we can, handle, we can handle the more complex generative model. We just, it, it's sort of, uh, you know, figuring out what that structure is, is the, is the burden. And we don't want to make the users do that. And it turns out that we don't have to, uh, to a large extent. So to to borrow from uh, Chris Ray's previous paper, then you can go hog wild <laughs> and just have a uh, uh, hundred people do labeling functions, and you don't care how they're actually uh, if they're uh, doing things that are repeating each other. Yep, I, I think many times uh, Chris wishes he hadn't used hog wild on that one paper because I think it's a you know it's a motto for for many things. You know, we we would love users to be able to go hog wild and not think about all these uh, you know these sorts of uh, issues of overlap or correlation or you know, the fact that one labeling function might be more or less accurate, or it might be more or less accurate on a specific type of data than another one. We want to model this all for the user um, so that they can get on to training their end model. All right. So, so far, we've talked about papers, and papers are cool because uh, it's, good, it's good to have some scientific foundation for what we do. But our audience is highly empirical, and uh, they need code. And luckily, you guys have code, and it's called Snorkel, which seems to be related to an earlier project of Chris's called Deep Dive. So talk to us about Snorkel. Yeah, there's a, there's, there's a, you know, there's a little bit of a tether there. And, uh, you know, Snorkel was, uh, was the, the, the favorite name that came out of, uh, you know, what comes after Deep Dive. So Snorkel, uh, well, so there's a relation to Deep Dive, but I'll, I'll just describe Snorkel to start with, which is that um, it's a system uh, for using, uh, at a high level, for using this data programming technique and sort of for quickly generating training data. But a lot of the tooling um, and all the uh, the use cases that are sort of publicly pushed right now are all around text extraction. So uh, we think this is you so know, walk us through a, a workflow. Sure. So 
Yeah. So, so we, I mean, we have a lot of um, uh, cool examples that are going right now, but, you know, imagine that you have, uh, you know, one example, we're working with the VA. And so say we're looking at a bunch of electronic health records and we're trying to uh, pull out something like mentions of pain in a specific location of the anatomy, um, which is a, you know, a current project that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, basically, what Snorkel does is it, it facilitates applying machine learning to this problem of, of structured data extraction or of information extraction, uh, or dark data extraction, as, as uh, my advisor Chris calls it. Or, uh, so, or I, I guess the other thing is turning unstructured data into a table. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> table, table graph, you know, or whatever you want to do with it. We just want to put it in nice you know, rows and columns. So then uh, you approach the domain experts and teach them Python? <laughs> exactly, yeah. So... so well, hopefully, we're, we're you know we're trying to we're trying to ride a wave, uh, not create the wave. So uh, you know, lucky for us, uh, and that's what well, uh, I, I would imagine, though, Alex. At some point, it, you'll have a UI where they just maybe even just highlight. Exactly. Yeah. So so um, we imagine this sort of uh, this sort of pyramid of users, and um, you know, there's a small number of of. Uh, machine learning experts, which I should say are people who both have the expertise and are willing to spend the time to understand, you know, how the particular systems we have work. Then we have sort of the middle group, which is, uh, you know, one of the most rapidly expanding groups, which is, you know, users, uh, so like domain expert users in the bio domain or, 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 you know, defense or industry or wherever else who don't know uh, a lot or anything about machine learning necessarily, but can, can write Python code. They can, they can write scripting code and stuff like that. And then, of course, there's the largest group that we would like to get to um, soon enough, which is uh, users who don't know how to code at all and who would use some, you know, some some GUI interface. But the um, this sort of middle group of of scripters has, uh, is 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 a really um, a really interesting group because you take you know take the bio domain. I haven't met a single you know biologist or uh, medical researcher recently who didn't at least know how to write a little bit of off in Python. And that's in fact why we wrote Snorkel on Python is so that. The way that the user goes about it, they load in their data. So we would load in these electronic health records, and we have a bunch of pre-processing stuff uh, that's sort of already built in to kind of properly pre pre-process the text. And then uh, basically, um, the user spends most of their time just writing labeling functions, and and these are literally just Python functions. So essentially, because the idea here is uh, these domain experts know what they're looking for. Exactly. Yeah, and when we provide, you know. Uh, little UI tools to let them inspect the data and see examples. And the goal is is uh, to to train the model without any without any hand labeled data. But we always have you know some label some data that gets labeled in the process of looking through it. And we also have a, always have a, a held out uh, blind test set of labeled data to evaluate the end model against. Give our listeners an idea of uh, I guess scale. So scale in two ways, right? So how the current version of Snorkel, how much how big are the data sets that it can handle? And then secondly, how, how much uh, work up front do the laborers have to do before you were able to tackle these large data sets and extract information from the large data sets? Yeah, so we, we've had some, you know, we're always trying to make it faster and easier, but we've had some, some very cool um, applications recently where, uh, you know, a domain expert sat down uh, in sort of one 24 to 48 hour period, uh, hopefully with some, some sleep in between, but I don't, they never got back to me on that. But uh, and actually um, was able to this is on a, a uh, just an entity tagging, like a disease tagging task. Just, one, just one labeler. Yeah, just one one person writing labeling functions uh, with a lot of domain expertise. And they were trying to uh, train a machine learning model to tag mentions of symptoms in, in a text document in an EHR. Um, and they were able to get um, 
I think something like within within five points or very close to a um a labeled data. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess that's a good point. So how did the results generally compare with humans? So um, we, uh, I mean, it, it depends on the task. So on, on tough tasks, um, and this is something that, uh, you know, if you're familiar with Deep Dive, the Deep Dive did as well, you know, we can exceed inter-annotator uh, agreement levels. But then often one thing that we, um, we compare against, which sometimes is tougher, is uh, how well does a model that's trained on a large set of uh, hand-labeled training data that was collected over, say, you know, months or years, uh, how well do we compete with that? And, and it turns out that we can actually even match or exceed those scores, again, using no-labeled training data. And one of the cool trade-offs uh, that we get to play with here is that we may have sort of noisier or crappier data, but we have more of it. So the user sits down and they write maybe you know, 20, 30 of these labeling functions, but then we can dump like 10 million medical records, say, into, into the snorkel pipeline. And the, these get labeled by the, the uh, labeling functions, and then we get better performance the more data we put in. We actually have some, some theory in the original data programming paper about this as well, but we see it in practice. Yeah, so yeah. We can, uh, I, I guess to put it in context for our listeners, right? So what Alex is describing here is basically imagine you have a trove of unstructured texts, uh, which you can consider dark data because you can't do much with it uh, rather, other than search it. Now they have. Uh, a tool that lets you take uh, that dark data and extract information, turn that dark data into tables, then suddenly you want to run queries. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like uh, to to flesh out this uh, um, EHR, this uh, health record example again. Um, you know, this is uh, some some very cool research we're doing with our collaborators, uh, where uh, they're interested in post-surgical outcomes and knowing, basically, seeing if we can do early detection of whether a say a hip replacement surgery went went awry and you, you look at electronic health records, which are emblematic of a lot of different data types, in that they have some structured data, like fields that are standardized that people fill in. And then they have some unstructured, like the notes section of the form that gets filled out. And if you look at, uh, you know, reporting of, say, the surgeries, which are very expensive, they're always reported in the structured data field, because, uh, you know, this is for billing reasons. You, you, they don't miss that at all. But if you look for sort of reports of, oh, well, my, my hip hurt, or I had a little pain above my left abdomen, or something like this, uh, this is very rarely uh, coded up using the structured data part of the medical records. It's usually in the notes section. And so that's exactly what uh, we, we apply Snorkel to, to pull that out and add it to the, the structured data. And then you can just query it, you can graph it, you can you know, run, uh, you train regression models against it, whatever you want to do with, your, uh, with the rest of your analysis pipeline. So going back to Snorkel in its current version, first of all, is it distributed? And, and and secondly, uh, how easy is it to get the get it going, downloaded, and and all of that? Because uh, sorry, Chris, but deep dive wasn't uh, the easiest thing. To do. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, despite how much Chris cares about his, uh, you know, us as grad students, uh, you know, some of us also had to, uh, you know, go through the deep dive install process and. Though we love Deep Dive, um, part of the motivation for Snorkel originally was to make a slightly lighter weight interface. So um, we do have, uh, you know, distributed execution of all the, you know, of applying the labeling functions and all the pre-processing steps. Although we're going to do further work on this this stage as well. But uh, you know, so but but everything is basically so, pretty uh, easy uh, set up. At this point, do I just download it? It's pretty easy, yeah, it, well documented. Uh, well, <laughs> I'm going to get myself into trouble, but I I, uh, I would venture to say uh, yes, uh, or at least well, we think I it's... Well, I mean, I, I, let me put it to you this way. So have you have you had people uh, just use it themselves who aren't that technical? 
Yeah, well, we, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty exciting. We have people all over Stanford, especially all over the med school. We have people in industry. Uh, without like, without uh, you, without you guys uh, helping them. Yeah, we were, yeah, we <laughs> the first time that, uh, you know, uh, we've done some work with Accenture, they came back and, you know, they had uh, created this whole demo and we're like, oh, so, so you did get it installed. They're like, yeah, yeah, we're, we're off and running. We're like, you know, don't look surprised, don't look surprised. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, people have, have really run with it and, and it's a really exciting thing to see. And I think, um, it, you know, it is research code and we'll always have more cleanup to do and we'll be, as we put in more features, but, you know, we have this nice Jupyter notebook interface. So, uh, and we have tutorials in the notebooks and, you know, it's all Python code. So it's, it's fairly easy to install. So py- uh, Python is the uh, high level interface, but uh, what about the engine itself? Is that, is that C++ or what? Yeah, so we, we use uh, um, uh, Numba, which is a, a really cool toolkit released, released by Continuum. Um, and uh, so to take the Python code and to compile it down for the, so that's for the generative model, which is, you know, the whole thing I was talking about with modeling the inputs from the user. That's sort of the, the, the data programming secret sauce that is at the heart of Snorkel. And then for the end model, we just plug into TensorFlow right now. Uh, so we're, we're pretty agnostic and we're putting an XGBoost and a bunch of other um, uh, I mean, we're fairly agnostic. The only switch that's needed is that we're we're giving we're outputting probabilistic models that are sorry prob sorry probabilistic training labels that are between zero and one rather than just yes no labels. But it's a it's a really small tweak, and then you just plug in your end model. So what is on the snorkel roadmap for the rest of 2017? Well, we're doing a lot of cool work um, to see how this paradigm of of providing weak supervision by writing labeling functions can be extended to images. Okay. So awesome. uh, that's one thing, and 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 there's some cool ideas there around, uh, you know. So there you can... there you would need a GUI, right? So people would need to highlight sections so of that, the image, right? So no, that's that's one approach. But the thing that we've just started experimenting with, and that's been achieving some pretty cool results, is that uh, we can just run some unsupervised uh, type algorithms first, and then this gives a uh, some. So so imagine you know you want to tag something in an image. You want to you want to tag whether some you know. For some reason, you want to tag: is this image does this image contain someone riding a bicycle or not? There's a lot of tools out there we could use to say put you know sort of reliable bounding boxes around a person or a bicycle or something like this. And then once you have that, even uh, if it's quite noisy, you can uh, write labeling functions on top of that. So you could write a labeling function that says, well, if my person bounding box is above the bicycle bounding box and sort of horizontally in the middle, then I think they're riding a bicycle. Label it true, and there might be noise in your labeling function because it's not perfect, and there's might be noise in in the bounding box tool, but it doesn't matter. That's what our framework is uh, is meant to handle. So, so we're we're just beginning to experiment with these sorts of interfaces of of how do we let people you know write simple labeling functions over something like like an image. We're also doing some work with uh, and which is going to get merged into the the public facing code uh, within days, I think, on semi structured data. So this is um, this is like a tabular or sort of XML or HTML data. Or even like, uh, what do you call it, uh, event data logs. Yeah, it could be something like that, where there's there's structure, but it's it's not perfectly known, or it's messy, or maybe it's embedded as an image, you know, in a, in a PDF, and there are sort of visual features to it. And, um, and so this is really cool, because there's a lot of data that is, uh, you know, in, uh, like we're running it on part sheets, which are these PDFs with embedded tables, uh, and, you know, tables that you can extract uh, information out of the tables inside the PDFs. Yes. Yeah. That's and, uh, awesome. Um, yeah. And so we're going to be pushing some code for that, and we're excited to see what people, you know, when 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 it's all open, you know, start uh, doing with that as well. So that's another cool area where we're um, 
where we've done some work and, and it's going to be ongoing. So what scale? What's the largest scale problem you guys have uh, used uh, Snorkel on? Is it terabytes? Um, well, so with, with text data, uh, the the raw number of bytes might not be um, uh, as impressive. But, uh, you know, we've, we've run the Snorkel uh, pipeline over, you know, uh, tens of millions of documents. And but again, you know, our, our, our focus with this project from observing users of Deep Dive and other systems, you know, what really you know hit us and, and was a big inspiration for Snorkel is that often our users were not getting uh, you know getting stuck on or getting bottlenecked by by scalability issues or by the need to have you know other complex things that that um that we stripped away in Snorkel they were just getting stuck because they didn't have training data and they were trying to train a machine learning model without training data and so again that's that's what we've really you know kept our focus on and then the once new they, new oil. Yeah, the new new oil. Yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, um, I just spoke with uh, uh, Lucas Piwald, who's the C- uh, co-founder and of Crowdflower, and I and I was asking him, and it's going to be a, an episode of this podcast. And I was asking him, so how are you guys doing in the in the age of deep learning? He said, we love it. People need <laughs> yeah. more, people need more labeled data. <laughs> yep, that is that's a hundred percent correct. Um, so in closing then um are there any are there any plans to make uh snorkel even more accessible so you mentioned something about that pyramid and uh, and uh now you're attacking kind of the middle part of the pyramid the people who can do write scripts yeah i mean that's that's a hundred percent the vision and you know i think that the the work at a, at a super high level that we discussed uh on the show today is you know the first part the papers that's sort of you know we're trying to push forward a new paradigm and, uh, you know, for our users to work with. And this raises all these technical challenges that, that we want to, you know, we want to smooth out those edges. Um, and it lets us write fun papers too, but it, you know, takes burden off the users. And then the second chunk of things that we were just talking about is sort of expanding horizontally to all these different modalities because the data programming uh, paradigm is not, uh, it's not specific to a certain modality, but the empirical, the empirical results and the types of labeling functions that users write are, are specific. So that's what we're, you know, putting a lot of time into now. And then, um, yeah, making it easier. I mean, I can mention one, like, very cool bit of work that's, uh, that's, you know, still underway, but it's on actually using natural language supervision. So someone um, describes uh, one of my lab mates is working on taking natural language descriptions of labeling functions. So uh, and using these to train train models. And again, uh, you know, this is a tough problem parsing natural language, that's why people write code. But our whole system is made, is built around the idea of taking in noisy inputs. So, uh, you know, we're actually, uh, it's sort of working, which is crazy. But we'll, you know, we'll hopefully push ahead on 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 cool stuff like that as well. Cool. Well, this has been great. And uh, I'll make sure I have pointers to the papers and to Snorkel itself. Thank you, Alex. Awesome. Thanks so much. You can follow Alex Ratner and Chris Ray on Twitter at Hasey Research or at AJ Ratner. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode. And if you have a moment, please rate us on iTunes.